welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. And with me, not as always... Hello, this is Max Nostorowicz. Yes, uh, this is our end of the year special, our third annual Smorgies Award, and since we have a mini tradition going on, we have a special guest. Yes, our guest today is Max Nostorowicz, author of the long-running Hellblazer review column, Sifting Through the Ashes. Max, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, you guys. Uh, I've been, you know, long-time listener, and uh, was really honored when uh, Tom's like, hey, you're one of our listeners, come on and give your opinions about stuff. You're one of two known listeners, so... <laughs> <laughs> Julian kind of has to listen to us to make sure that we're not, like, cursing live, but... And he's very, he's very busy at this time of season, so I wouldn't dream of... But you choose to listen to us, and so yeah. you are welcome. <laughs> Yeah, I have a uh, I have a long commute to work, so I try to fill that with uh, podcasts. Same. This, by the way, is our first international calls in terms of Skyping. So if the audio quality drops a bit, if we have some troubles with hanging up, uh, dear listeners, please excuse us. We do our best, but... Yeah, we'll do what we can to work around it, but I think it's going to be an interesting and fun show. Yeah. So as our listeners are probably aware, uh, what we do every year is we assign random award categories that we made up just because we feel like it. And we use it to talk about things that have happened throughout the industry over the year. It's been kind of a crappy year. Uh, full disclosure, I'm not over Carrie Fisher. I'm not. Uh, yeah. I'm just, we I'm record okay. this literally one day after the announcement that Carrie Fisher, yeah. may soul, rest in peace. That one cut me deep, so... I'm still sort of working through it. It is, therefore, appropriate that I would like to, uh, if you gentlemen will indulge me, I'd like to rename our first award. Uh, sure. We usually kick things off with the Tina Belcher Award for Best Female Character. I would like to officially uh, rename that the Carrie Fisher Memorial Award for Best Female Character. So my pick for this year is Velvet Templeton from Velvet. This is by Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting over at Image. Admittedly, a character that has not had as much time to shine as others in 2016. The book's been on hiatus since around the middle of the year. But I have to admit that I'm just completely taken by this character. She's complex, she's intelligent, she's compelling. And Brubaker is really creating this role here that I have only ever seen once before. The older lady spy who kicks ass, the only other one that comes to mind is Helen Mirren's sniper character from Red. Mm -hmm. So she's just a delight to follow. She's an amazing protagonist. I'm looking forward to more soon. And uh, that's my pick. I'm always forgetting that this series exists because, like you said, the stops between the arcs are so long and Brubaker always launches something new every year. So I keep forgetting, oh, he has this thing that's running basically three years now, only like five issue chunks per year. Which is kind of a shame because it is really good. Okay, yeah, this is the series that I am thinking of. I haven't read any of Velvet, but I'm I think I'm vaguely familiar with the concept of it is like the what if the money penny of James Bond was the actual mm -hmm. spy. Yeah. So um I didn't know it was still ongoing or they were doing, you know, the, the breaks. But it's if it's an image title, that shouldn't be uh surprising. They have been pushing the envelope in terms of new configurations and new spins on existing archetypes. So that would definitely be one of them. Uh, my choice to go the completely other way around is uh, Daisy Wooten from uh, Giant Days, written by <laughs> John Ellison, with art by Max Serin and Lisa Treyman. 
And actually, any one of the three protagonists in Giant Days could count as best female characters. It's just that Daisy had a very nice arc this year, finally slowly, slowly coming out of her shell. Max, are you reading Giant Days? Have you uh, read No, I'm not. I, I will admit my uh, reading list right now is um, very sparse, unfortunately. It's more of just time and money and uh, space to put all my books yeah, so it's a very delightful college comedy, and all the characters feel like exaggerations of people, but actual people. Nobody's just a stereotype. And it's just amazing to see how we they took this character of the homeschooled girl, that for her everything is either new and exciting or terrifying and scary out there in the real world, and slowly building her up, and this year has been a blast. I feel like she especially deserves it this year because of that annual where she plays a cosmic <laughs> Uatu character called Daisy and starts exploring alternate timelines where she doesn't meet her friends and then everything is terrible. All right. And uh, my uh, best female character for the year is uh, Meika from Monstrous by Marjorie Liu yes. and art by Asana Takeda. Uh, certainly a title that I'll be mentioning um, a couple times during this recording. <laughs> um I just really enjoy her as a fully fleshed out character who is very capable, but is still having um, struggles because she's uh, possessed by like a Lovecraftian entity that we're slowly finding more about. And um, she's very headstrong, which I think could be a turnoff for some people, but um, she's experiencing the struggles that that headstrongness can get her into. So I'm really interested to see how her character progresses based off of the journey she's going on. Yeah, I'm way late on that series. Mostly, again, time and money and space. But the first issue alone was one of the best things that happened last year. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I wish more image titles would do like an 80-page intro. Just because I think it's it's a good way to like get people onto a book. I picked up the first issue of Motor Crash. And um, it was decent for like the 20-some pages it was. But I, I really wanted more to be able to really want to commit to the series i'm still going to probably pick up the rest of the arc at least the first arc but um i really think new titles and image could benefit from having like just a little bit of a bigger first issue for fleshing out the world and giving the characters more room to shine especially when it's a creative team that you're not familiar with I exactly mean, if you're yeah into motor crush it's because you know babs tar cameron stewart these are people that we know if it was an unknown team and the first issue was sort of like eh maybe i'll come back for the trade maybe i won't yeah. I have to say, by the way, about Micah, the thing that I find brilliant about her in terms of the way that Lou is writing her is that she sits exactly on the threshold between, on the one hand, sort of this sympathetic villain of these witches and these people who've been abusing her. And on the other hand, there's something very cold and potentially cruel about her as well. She herself is not necessarily the best person in the world. No, no. And you definitely see that a lot when you um, see how Kippa interacts with her, like the fox girl, who is, you know, like the cutest thing about that entire book. I'm also interested to see what happens with uh, Kippa, if she can uh, maintain that, you know, optimism and devotion towards uh, Mako that she has. Yeah, I think it's a book that's going to go in some very interesting directions. So, Tom, take us through our next category. Uh, we're doing the Omar Little Award for Best Male Character. And Sean, your first pick? I have to give this to someone that I never thought I would. My pick for Best Male Character of 2016 is Stephen Strange via Doctor Strange from Jason Aaron and Chris Bacalo, published by Marvel. I have to hand it to Aaron on this. He may have actually cracked a code here. Doctor Strange has been a character that 
for years I found distant, difficult to connect to, sort of simplistic in, you know how like in that Animaniac sketch, it's magic. And it tends to be used so often as a deus ex machina. I'm thinking here of that damn Avengers disassembled storyline where he shows up and lectures people for seven pages about why Wanda is insane and there's no such thing as chaos magic or something like that. And you get used to him as just being this bland, magical, blah, 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 blah. And the movie didn't do much to help with that. (laughs) But Aaron came up with this concept that's brilliant in retrospect, which is, you know, all of these magical feats have deeply, deeply damaged him, both physically and mentally. It seems like such a simple perspective flip, but all of a sudden you become invested in the idea that there's actually stakes for him now. Every time he casts a spell, it does something to him. His liver has developed eyes and teeth and is chanting in tongues or something. A 300-pound mystical invisible tumor growing out of the side of his head. I don't know. Just like completely insane things. Bacalo, for once, is being well used Mm. in drawing the weirdness. So it's a paradigm shift for this character. I can't remember anyone else except maybe for a few pages Brian Vaughn tried to do that at the end of The Oath. But I don't remember any other situation where Strange was presented as this character who was not the Reed Richards of magic above it all so he can lecture everyone. This one puts him at a real disadvantage, brings him down to a level where finally you can feel something for him besides, I don't know, I guess if people have daddy issues, maybe they'd be into him. I don't know. I don't know what that is. But If they want a magical Tony Stark. Pretty much. Down to the facial hair. What, what I really like about this is, as you said, compared to the movie, which was so boringly stylized and generic and as clean as it can be. If this comic was a movie, it feels like something David Cronenberg would have done. Oh, yeah. And and I love it. It's amazing. My pick is uh, Judge Rico from uh, Judge Dredd, the younger Rico, not the original Rico. This is the clone of Dredd that was introduced in the late 90s, early 2000s, and presented as sort of like Dredd Jr. And they had a really strong take on him this year in the Grindstone Cowboys uh, story slash crossover, in which Dredd is dead and everybody knows he's not dead because this strip is named after him and of course he's gonna come back but people feel that he has to fill these huge shoes that he's technically ready for because he's directly the clone but he's not mentally ready for because he doesn't have the experience and it's interesting to see Michael Carroll wrote that story who turned out some brilliant work played him as this guy who's supposed to be the big inspiration but he doesn't want to he just want to be a cop hmm and that's it. That, that's my favorite. Okay, uh, before I go with mine, I kind of want to go back to Sean's a little bit, just in a um, trends I've been noticing, like, both in and out of comics. So um, there's definitely been, like, a H.P. Lovecraft resurgence in, in terms of, like, the aesthetics of how magic and horror is being done, whether it's the, you know, tentacled gods you see in Monstrous or um, from what Sean's been describing about, like, the cost of magic. In a lot of Lovecraft's fiction or in, like, board games, role-playing games based off of his work, magic always has, like, a cost as opposed to, like, um, Harry Potter where it's just, like, I wave my wand and do my spell. There's always, like, you need to sacrifice part of yourself to warp reality or whatnot. So I wasn't aware that Doctor Strange was going in, in that direction. So I'd be interested to see... If it continues that way, or if it's just a flash-in-the-pan thing the series is going to do for a while. He's not being written that way in other Doctor Strange books that are coming out at the time. I think this is just something that Aaron is doing. 
And as soon as he leaves, who knows, right? Well, you never... it's the kind of story that has to run its course. You can't do the, he pays the price and he survives forever. It's one of those things that you have to finish. I am just having like an epiphany now. Mm-hmm. And it's because of you, Max. It is all your fault. What Aaron has done is turn Stephen Strange into John Constantine. Oh, gosh. And, I, and I'm kind of into that. Because Strange doesn't have the dead friends hanging around, so he can actually crack a smile from time to time. Yeah. And mean it, and not be like, my life is miserable, let me drink. Hey, Shia LaBeouf, how are you doing today? Oh, God. Mm. Right? So, hmm, that's interesting. Okay, I hadn't considered that angle. But the whole idea of, you know, magic having a cost started with, in comics at least, it started with Hellblazer, right? Or I guess when Alan Moore introduced Constantine, the idea of they were doing the crisis and all this stuff where, like, you know, magic has... A price and you are going to pay it. Yeah, in, in the old Doctor Strange stories, it usually was magic has a price and the world will pay for it. There was this long, long story in the Strange Tales anthology, which ran for like 19 issues, something usually ridiculous, about there's this evil coming up and Doctor Strange pays a part of his soul to stop it, which then means something even worse coming up. And go on and on and on until, you know, the end of the universe is coming because he stopped a demon bad guy like 20 issues earlier. Yeah. The difference here might be that Aaron is rooting it more, instead of ethereal terms, like part of your soul is disappearing, he makes it very clearly a physical issue. Like, Strange's body looks like a car wreck. It looks like he's been chewed up and spit out by every demon in hell. And that, I think, is part of the whole change. Like, the narration is constantly describing how every time he moves, he's in pain, and his liver, and his kidneys, and his spine. He's basically holding himself together with a little spit and some duct tape. Magic duct tape, maybe. But I'm not used to seeing him like that. And it completely got me invested in this story where normally I'd just be like, Strange, okay, what are you going to tell us about magic today? I mean, the idea of magic having a cost isn't utterly alien. If you think about, like, you know, classic tales of magic from, like, the pulp stuff, it's always like, I require a blood sacrifice for my my spell or whatever. And usually that's something you attribute to, like, evil magic or dark magic, but not necessarily the the good side, quote-unquote. But, uh, so onwards to my uh, best male character. I actually have um, the will from Saga. Yes. Um, Brian K. Vaughn, Fiona Staples. I really have enjoyed seeing the Will's character progress over the 36 or 30 however many issues I've read of the series, you know, starting off as, like, the badass bounty hunter with Lion Cat, and then um, him going into a coma, and then the story shifting to his sister, the Brand, and then now we see him um, recovered after uh, the Brand sacrificed herself to get the magical healing dragon, whatever, and he's all um, overweight and uh, having visions of his dead girlfriend, the stock, and the brand, and traveling around with um, Sweet Boy, the giant, like, St. Bernard that shoots, like, the tranquilizer darts out of his nose. <laughs> so it's just been great to watch, like, his crazy journey. So I'm uh, definitely looking forward to seeing where that goes next. It's, it's amazing that they allowed the character who was, like you said, the cool guy. Yeah. The, basically the Boba Fett of, of yeah, the Yeah, he definitely was that. You know, yeah. Lion Cat was like the main merchandising for that series. And mm-hmm. and they allowed it all and they said, no, th- we had this story. He's not going to be the cool guy forever because people are not like that forever. People change, right? That's the big thing with Saga. People grow and change. I think what Saga adds to this that maybe might not have been as pronounced in previous Vaughn books is the idea that when these side characters step off the stage... 
you don't actually know if he's going to go back to them. Like, in Why the Last Man, up until the end, you pretty much knew that Allison and 355 would be around towards the end, right? It seemed pretty clear that he would keep the core cast together. When the will goes into his coma, you don't actually know if he's ever coming back because Saga is Vaughn off the chain, basically. So Yeah, it's a very unforgiving book. Yeah, and characters can drop off and disappear for 20 issues, and you think they're done. You think that's the end of their story, and then they pop back, and that's it's delightful. The Will's return was actually a highlight, because it was like, wait, you're back? And you're fat. It, and, yeah, and he has this whole thing with Gwendolyn now, which means like he's still involved in the story, even though his first encounter with these characters was so long ago. These are characters who have changed over time, and the Will more than most. Yeah, I think it's been about four years within the story, I feel like. Yeah, something like that. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm interested to see how Gwendolyn has uh, grown or progressed in the two or however many years since we last saw her. And probably that was about two years that last time she was in an issue as well. So I always ask this of people who are reading Saga alongside me because I really want to know. Do you think that there's something else going on with these hallucinations of the stock and the brand? Or that it's just in his head? Uh, I don't know. I mean, part of me is like he's just having like PTSD and from everything he's been through that he's trying to like cope. But at the same time, like there could be some magic about that. I don't I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if we see people come back to life in that book. I mean, I think it would be very uncharacteristic Brian K. Vaughn thing to do. But um, just based off of this world, I would not be surprised. So, Tom, why don't you introduce our next award? Wilson Taylor Award for Best Writer. Max, why don't you kick us okay, off? Okay, um, I'm going to go with Marjorie Liu from Monstrous. I just think the world that she's crafted and the characters she's designed are just phenomenal. I, I, I can't get enough of it. Like, um, I know, Tom, you're behind a little bit, but they're currently on a boat going towards like a mysterious <laughs> island or whatever, and we're seeing a whole bunch of new character designs and just different parts of the world that I didn't ever expect to be experiencing in the book based off how it was starting we're on a pirate ship with like shark people so it's just so much fun you're tempting me my budget can only stretch so far but you are tempting me this yeah, one's and worth it I... like there's this underlying theme of like escalation things in the world waking up as like the entity i can't remember what it, what its name is is like growing stronger and like things are happening in the world so there is no other title that i am more excited to pick up each month when it's out I have to give Lou a ton of credit here because one of the first works that she ever did was an X-Men novel, not a graphic novel, but just like a book that was called Dark Mirror and it was not very good. She has improved over time leaps and bounds. Reading Monstrous Now, I could not believe it was the same person who wrote X-23 yay 100 years ago, right? She really has come a long way. Like Max says, I'm right there with you. Monstrous is a book where every time an issue comes out, I'm like, yes, I must have it now. Yeah, and it's definitely the one title when people are like, hey, you know, can you recommend me something? I'm like, Monstrous, just go That's for it. It's, it's beautiful. I love the characters. My pick is Jeff Lemire for Plutona, Moon Knight, Black Hammer, After Death. He's been a busy beaver this year. He's also doing like a million things for Valiant, right? Oh, who can keep up, Tom? Between you and me, who can keep up? I have to say this much. I've never been as much a fan of Lemire's superhero work specifically because it tends to be more hit and miss than his original stuff. 
But this year in particular, he's just been doing really, really good work across the board. Moon Knight is one of those characters who, like Strange, I usually don't have a lot of time for. Okay, we get it. You're crazy. Do you have anything else? Like, Bueller, Bueller, anything new? And he has really found a way to sort of, let's try something new. Let's do this multiple personality thing and maybe, maybe run it through this time to where it actually makes sense. Plutona was fantastic. Black Hammer, I've enjoyed quite a bit. I am admittedly holding off on his collaboration with Scott Snyder for uh, After Death, but I'm expecting good things. He has maintained a level of consistency, especially, you know, Hawkeye hasn't been as well received. Yeah. given, Given that he followed up on Fraction, but I did think that he did a decent amount of work on that. I think anyone following up on Fractions run on Hawkeye wasn't going to be as well received. Yeah, as... It, it, like you said, it's like being the guy following Ellen Moore's one thing. You're not, yeah. nobody's gonna like you the same. It's funny though, like they actually did the smart thing now, and you know, when they rebooted Hawkeye again, they said, no, just give it to Kate Bishop and have Kelly Thompson write it. So it's enough of a different kind of creature where people are not comparing you to, yeah, but Matt Fraction's Hawkeye. Like, okay, yeah, that thing happened. Let's do something else. Uh, my guy is a also a tough act to follow, but he solves it by simply closing off everything that he's done when he finishes, and it's the king. It's Tom King. And <laughs> I, I'm kind of surprised somebody had any other pick, because to me it's like, okay, he finished Omega Man this year, last four issues, so it counts, and then he did Vision and Sheriff of Babylon, which, it's the trifecta right there. Most people don't have that much good works throughout the whole of their career. To do it in one year is... This is going to sound petty of me, but the reason I didn't give Tom King Best Writer was because he also did Batman this year. Uh, See, here's the thing. The first arc of Batman, not so good. No. Second arc of Batman, much, much better. His short story for the Batman annual, great. And even so, in the case of the Batman, like you said, the one small blight, the first arc of Batman, he also didn't have the best artist working with him. Like I said, with Finch on... You know, on the wheels. It never could have been as great as the stuff he did with Beganda. Or with, uh, who who did Sheriff of Babylon? I do not recall right now. Anyway, like I said, with this kind of material, even if everything else he did, even if he did, like, five other crappy projects, he would still win. I absolutely, um loved Omega Men, and I read a couple issues of his uh, Vision book, and I, I thought they were great. His Batman stuff, it's... Kind of like the uh, Matt Fraction Hawkeye thing. I mean, a lot of people really, really enjoyed Scott Snyder's run on the book. I, for one, didn't care for it. But you're um, not alone. We didn't either. So you're you're yeah. you're, you're in a good company. Yeah, I feel like you know it's one of those like you have big shoes to fill. But the, I guess like some of the problems I have with that are the layouts in some of his pages, especially in the more recent ones where um, there's a scene with like Catwoman and the Puppet Master going through Uh-oh. like pipes in a prison uh, and um i was like how am i supposed to read this two-page spread it was very it tried to out, um, outdo its reach i guess that's fair so our next award is the basil hallward award for best artist and i feel like i might be stepping on max's toes here because my pick is sana takeda from monstrous <laughs> every category has to have a monstrous pick right i have to say this just as lou deserves credit for how far she's come. I feel like we are a long, long way from Misty Knight and Black Cat being threatened by slimy tentacles. Oh. That was hers, right? That was Sana Takeda's cover with the whole, with a boob gate. So now the tentacles are being used for good. 
Well, and kind of. It, it, she was never a bad artist. It was simply a bad choice for that title at that yeah. time. But know. she was associated because of that title. Like there were very often, you know, discussions about how it was kind of cheesecake. And she has gone 180 degrees with this book that she's working on now with Marjorie Liu. And it's just the detail and the beauty of it all. And when she creates these giant kaiju gods, it's breathtaking. I had a uh, a tie between uh, Sana Takeda and, um, well, I'll just go with uh, Dan Mora, who did the art for Klaus yes. by Grant Morrison out of Boom. And um, I really like the intricacy of his uh, of, of the city, just how he draws the characters, as well as being able to do like the crazy psychedelic hallucination stuff. But yeah, I mean, both of these, I think Dan Mora and Sana Takeda, they're just, they're so detailed and intricate in like their backgrounds and it's just pretty to look at he's got a great clear storytelling he knows how to tell a story from a to b to c and a lot of people that try to do the complicated beautiful structures just get lost in them but not more right yeah i'm gonna go with dan mora for for this year just just to put some variety into this. <laughs> well my pick knowing that i won't step on anybody's toes is uh, michelle thief well, he only did two issues of Copra versus this year, and we reviewed issue one, Sean, I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, we did. And speaking of someone who does do the complicated structures, both were a marvel of 1980s, post-Shaken, post-Miller, let's see what I can do with the page, let's see what I can do with the storytelling that never been done before. The whole story of Copra versus number one, told over a year in like a series of side shots, repeating stuff, repeating material, but never ever doing the same thing over and over again. And some of those visual designs are weird as hell. I mean, DD is just like, wow, that's certainly something. Yeah, the, the man is simply, he's showing people that this medium can still do so much that has been tried when so many people are just sticking to the basics, simply doing, you know, what's been done before. And he's like, no, just because I'm telling a superhero story, and he is telling Copra is a superhero story, just because I'm telling a story in a very familiar and grounded genre doesn't mean that the way I'm telling it should be familiar and grounded. I can do whatever I want, and he does whatever he wants, and he can back up his pretensions. It's kind of funny, like, thinking about where the industry is right now, there really isn't as much focus on the artwork is in comparison to the writing and the characters that are introduced characters for um, diversity. So, you know, I, I hear very little like reading through websites about artists pushing boundaries with new ways to um, show what the medium can do. Maybe because it's easier to write about writing than it is to show. You need a lot of like panels for um, to give examples of what you're doing or um, requires the level of, analysis of the art that isn't easy to write about i suppose most critics uh, like us like me and sean are writers right and because of that we intentionally drift towards the writing part of you know what works what does work with dialogue and character building and we're less inclined to talk about art simply because we're not as familiar with i think the terms and the terminology and i'm i look at my old old first year reviews and i'm like i'm so ashamed that i could talk about a issue a book a series whatever and not mention the artist once except like drawn by so-and-so and like no so-and-so matters so-and-so the writer is the writer the artist is uh, as someone said he's the director the photographer the actors and the special effect guys yeah yeah i can definitely say like um 
in me going through my long, long, long uh, Hellblazer analysis, like I definitely was looking more at like how shadows are used and just how different artists um, draw Constantine or are, are um, what do they show, what do they not show based off of the pairing. Like um, early on in the series, there's a lot of like implied violence or gore or horror and um when you get to uh garth ennis and steve dillon they're much more like here's a man getting shotgunned in the crotch or you know (laughs) his face cut up by a box cutter but i think giving birth to the son of satan oh gosh yeah i haven't gotten to that one yet that that's kind of a ways away i'm uh currently on hiatus from writing that column because i just needed to take a break from living and breathing hellblazer hellblazer's a lot you could have signed up for something that had occasional moments of uplifting, but you went, like, for the... Or it was shorter. I did that because I wanted... There wasn't really any long-form analysis of that series in comparison to Sandman, The Invisibles, other monumental things from the late 80s, early 90s. And I'm like, this is a 300-issue series or whatever. I, th- I think, you know, it needs to be talked about. You know, it progresses in real time. It's got a political undertones and basically like i started a couple years ago and when i started you know paying attention to politics a little more and people were starting to talk about 2016 so sort of mm. something to occupy my time with it also boasts like one of the most impressive list of creators oh that gosh ever yeah on, on, the, on a single title the, yeah final page of the final issue you have uh constantine in front of the uh front of the bar and on the and on the back of the bar are bottles with the names of every writer on the title. And they put Brian Azzarello on the very back. <laughs> Where he belongs! Not a big fan of that run. Let's go with best miniseries of the year. So I'm going to start off with Klaus, actually. Might be a little cheating because it started in 2015, but it went from six issues to seven issues, and um, I really just really enjoyed the story of the young Santa Claus, uh, you know, in the delivering toys to the... Um, the downtrodden people and uh, his giant wolf friend. And um, you don't see many stories of Santa and Krampus mixed together. So it was just, it was fun. The characters were enjoyable. Like the, I'm terrible like remembering characters' names. So there's like the young prince who very much comes off like uh, Damien uh, originally does, where he's like, he's spoiled and he's kind of a you know a dick you don't like him very much but but then by the end after seeing like what he's gone through in his life you really like you know root for him to have a happy ending and he does so just a a feel-good book for me and you know dan mora is as you've already said great artwork uh grant morrison's my favorite writer when it comes to comic i'll pick up anything he's working on this is a category where i think we're all going to cheat a little bit because my pick for best miniseries is the vision do we consider it a miniseries if it was designed to be 12 issues in advance? And most not... Marvel ongoing series nowadays end at number eight. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Well, there's that too. But in any case, you know, it's our podcast and I say it's a miniseries. Uh, so this is uh, The Vision by Tom King, art by Gabriel Hernandez-Walta, color by uh, Jordi Belair, of course. So the thing about The Vision... It is something that I feel maybe 2016 is being known for, like overall, because I'm noticing this coming up a lot, is the idea that the Vision, like Doctor Strange, like a lot of characters that have been recontextualized recently, is a character who, if you had given me a book by him 10 years ago, I would have been like, eh, this is the robot that was based 
of Ultron who that has married feelings. that has feelings, one that married the toaster. She had kids with him that weren't actually kids, but then they turned out to be, I think, the only gay couple in the Marvel Universe at the moment. And then she went crazy, and then the souls, and then he... Like, just so much lunacy. Like, the Vision is one of those characters that's, like, deep, deep Marvel continuity that nobody ever wants to hear about ever again. Like Hawkman. Like oh well I mean Hawkman's on that on another level I think like <laughs> Hawkman is sort of Hawkman is sort of a phenomenon on his own but the Vision is up there too and Tom King he's the writer who knows how to cut through all of it these were twelve issues that take the character of the Vision say so he's an artificial intelligence he's an android he constructs a family because he wants to know what having a family is like for some reason this does not involve any of his biological kids although I guess. There's a whole thing there. Why not start over if that's your backstory? And the entire 12 issues deal with these four androids who are living in this house in Washington, D.C. and very slowly going insane. And it's heartbreaking. It was tragic. There are moments, you know, when Victor from Runaways shows up again, Victor Mancha. I was like, oh, wow. Not a lot of writers remember who this guy is and why he's important appreciated and then the way that that ends and the way that you're slowly watching these characters lives spiral out of control it was amazing i have never seen a take on vision that was so compelling that i could not look away and that is something that king is building a reputation for that this is what he's being known for right taking characters who are b-listers c-listers if we're being generous And finding ways to make them not just the stars of their own story, but when you go to it, it's like, yeah, okay, so he had this whole complicated thing, and then Wanda turned evil and apparently gave oral sex to Wonder Man. I don't know what was going on in that page that everybody knows about when she had the shoulder pads. Let's Mm. not go back to the 80s. But all of that nonsense. And this... You can pick it up, you can enjoy it on its own, and it does such amazing work with this character. And, you know, if there are any other B-listers or C-listers that are hiding in the vaults, just give them to Tom King, because he knows what he's doing. And Walter's artwork was phenomenal and consistent throughout the entire run. There were no dips, there were no glitches. It was just a really, really solid 12 issues. How do you feel about uh, Vivian... That was the name of, of his daughter, right? Vivian? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Vivian going over to um, Champions, the new young team, I guess? Because I'm, I'm not familiar with her, what her outcome was at the end of that series, so I assume she came out okay, but... Um... Pretty much the only one who turned out kind of okay by the whole thing. I'll be honest, it was one of those situations where I knew that she would end up becoming a bigger deal to the Marvel Universe, but because I've been cutting back so much... And I don't care about the champions. I'm happy that she seems to have caught on because she is a very interesting character. It's something that Tom and I talked about, like in the aftermath of the Omega Men, which we were both very impressed with. The idea that if Kyle Rayner were to turn up in another book by another writer in six months, would I read it? The answer being hell no. Yeah. Because yeah. like sort of the drawback of King's skill that when you get to the end of the story, you don't really feel at all compelled to say, okay, well, now tell me what happens to this character, because no one else... Unless it's King again, right? You don't want another person's take. 
Oh my god. If Tom King was writing the champions, I'm pretty sure you'd have to scrape my brain matter off the ceiling. Yeah, we liked her in Vision because we liked the way he wrote her. It's the Frank Miller Electra thing. Did people like Electra? Sure they did. Did they like Electra by somebody who's not Frank Miller? Sales and critical reception throughout 30 years of revivals say no, they do not. My pick, by the way, is Ancestor, which was serialized in the Island Anthology throughout the year. This is by uh, Malachi Ward and Matt Sheen. And it starts as this weird science fiction story about two people sort of inserting themselves into a cultless social experiment and ends up with everybody pretty much ascending to be gods. And then it becomes weird. The last issue... At of... that point, it becomes weird. Yeah. Because before that, it's not. It, it starts out weird and it gets <laughs> metaphysically weird. And the last issue of it, which is the main reason I picked it, A, looks amazing. The last 30 pages with everybody just pretty much flowing throughout the cosmos, not playing God, being God at the same time, and then sort of turning in on themselves is amazing. It's so amazing that I, even though I have the whole thing on issues, I think of buying the collected edition simply so I can read it all in one go and be comfortable about it. Well, it's also a show of support for Island and for those creators. I think that that's the reason they're publishing these trades in the first place. Like you said, you like Grant Morrison? It's the kind of thing that younger Grant Morrison would have done, I think. If, if there was a place for him to publish... Stuff that self-owned at the time. It was just as incoherent at the end as the Morrison story. You're right. Oh, oh yeah. You're right. Me, me and Sean. Me and Sean. Well, now I have Max on my side, so we. You have, do have Max we, on your side. Yeah, I, I we, can get, we can gang up. The Morrison team can gang up on you, Sean. Yeah, like after, after finishing um, Batman Incorporated, I don't ever want to read another Batman story. Like I just have no desire to go beyond that. Like when Fifty Two started, I'm like, I don't need Batman fighting another secret cult that's been in Gotham for generations and, you know, gets into Batman's head or I don't need um Faceless Joker or whatever that would mean. I have my ideal Joker stories and portrayals of him, so, you know, I just I enjoy globe trotting Batman going around and, you know, weird adventures in Japan and stuff like that. So No, but I think with the big two, especially now, especially when comics are so expensive, it does become sort of a thing where you get your definitive run and then you just don't want any more. I don't want any more Omega Men unless King has some other idea. I don't want more Vision. I don't want more Rocket Raccoon if it's not Scotty Young. What's the well, point? Well, actually, it's Matthew Rosenberg, so that might be okay. It could be, but you get what you need from these creators who you would have followed anyway. And then you get to the end and it's like, well, so now they're doing this other thing. I don't care. They're still charging four ninety nine for it, so they can kiss my home. Uh, what's our next category, Sean? Our next category is the Proud Mary Award for Best Ongoing. Tom, you want to kick us off? Oh, yeah. And Sean, you know it. Everybody who listens know it. Because it ended this year, Transformers vs. G.I. Joe by no. Tom Cioli. Wait, hasn't that wrapped up, though? This year, though. Oh, okay. Last four issues this year. I'll allow it. You allow it. We make the rules. I and you know what? Even if it wasn't, even if it ended ten years ago, I would still pick it as the best ongoing series. As far as I'm concerned, this takes two toy brands that have been used in interesting ways in the past and transforms them and elevates them. And it's interesting to compare it to what Transformers More Than Meets the Eye did with the Transformers. Which it humanized them and it made them more emotional and made them more connected to us as people. And this series, at the same time, saying like, no, we don't need that. We don't need to be human. It's a comics. This, for me, is the most comic booky comic ever conceived. 
it literally is the medium. It's fun, it's poppy, it's bright, and if you want to talk about Escalation, this is a series where Earth gets destroyed at the end of the first arc, and then it keeps going after that. It keeps getting bigger, and the end was big as you can. Just an amazing series and beauty. Art and beauty. That's fair. There's something about Sioli's style that has never really clicked for me. I see what he's doing and I appreciate that he's doing it, but it's not something... And I grew up with these characters, right? Like, I am a child of the 80s, so I should be into it. But there's something about it that never quite works for me. I'm not sure what it is, but I do grant you that he has done some pretty impressive work. And I think now he's doing... Uh, backups for Young Animal, right? Just give him a book. Gerard Way, what are you doing? If you have Tom Scioli on your payroll, give him an actual title. That seems like such an obvious thing. My pick is actually... It came as a surprise to me, because I didn't think that I would nominate it. I was actually sure that, like Max said, I would get to the end of this run and I wouldn't want to continue. My pick for Best Ongoing of 2016 is Jughead. Originally by Chip Zdarsky and Erica Henderson, and this year saw a creative team shift to Ryan North and Derek Charm. I was very, very much on board with the original Zdarsky-Henderson run. I thought it was funny. I thought it was entertaining. It was a version of Jughead that I had never seen before. I wanted to know more. I wanted to follow these crazy imagination adventures of his where he's a pirate and a superhero and then it turns out his school actually is trying to create super spies out of their students who the hell would hire Archie to be a spy for anything I don't know but there you go and when Zdarsky announced that he was stepping down the first thought that went through my head is okay he goes I go too that's okay not even mad about it this is the run and I'm happy that it's there and I don't want to go any further Ryan North is a writer who I enjoy tremendously and I was nevertheless nervous because the first thing they said was they're going to bring in Sabrina. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what the reboot is about. What are you going to start doing magic? It, it doesn't make any sense. And I read the first issue with some degree of trepidation. And then they meet when Sabrina is working as a mascot for Pops and she's wearing a giant burger suit and Jughead falls in love with her. <laughs> with the suit. The suit? Mostly. Yeah. He's a burger sexual. And he sees the suit and he wants to hang out with the suit and he imagines going with the suit for dates and drinks or whatever and then she takes off the suit and it's Sabrina and he's like, um, well... And I was laughing the entire Just arc. seeing the suit in the preview art, I was like, <laughs> comic, you have reached your zenith as an art form. He imagines all of his friends as food and it really gets his gears going and I was just laughing. It's one of those occasions where... I can fully admit that I'm wrong here because North really manages to... He's not aping Zdarsky. He's not copying that particular type of comedic storytelling. He's doing his own thing, but it works so well. The whole concept of, you know, Sabrina's magic becoming a source of screwball comedy because every time she curses him, anybody else, it would work. She's cursing Jughead, so it doesn't work out. She wants to punish him for snubbing her, so she forces him through magic to spend time with Reggie, and then we get a bro montage of Jughead and Reggie hanging out and having a great time. Only magic could make Reggie tolerable, obviously, but <laughs> he was constantly surprising me the entire arc, and I am sticking around. It was a tough sell. Any other writer who came up after Zdarsky, I would have been more 
unsure about, and they could have dropped the ball and they would have said, well, that's fine. I don't need it. But North is keeping me on this book. We'll wrap up this category with, uh, I chose Sex Criminals as the Mm. best ongoing, even though it's only, you know, five issues this year and five issues again next year. But, um, the series has really progressed past the initial lewd jokes of the, uh, original, uh, story arc. And, you know, it still has those, but it's definitely going in a direction that I wasn't expecting. And it's showing how, you know, the relationships of the characters are evolving based off of their crazy adventure. And it's it's kind of gotten meta in a little bit. There was one issue where Susie and uh, the professor, her poor name was uh, Jasmine St. Cocaine or whatever. They were going to have this big argument and then it cuts to like... Of a Skype call between Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky being like, man, I don't really want to write this scene. And then like Chip making jokes at him the entire time. And, the, and, and instead of the argument, it's that scene of how, you know, I don't want to write this scene, but I feel like it's needed for the narrative. And he's like, well, why don't we just put in a drawing of us having this discussion instead? And um, I really enjoyed that. And um, I'm not sure where the book's going to go from where it's at, but um, I'll admit I, I read that series half just for the letter pages at the end. <laughs> can we can we just say that Chip Zdarsky is a national treasure and no matter which nation you belong to? I'm half Canadian, so I can claim that. <laughs> yes, you, you get Zdarsky. This guy's Twitter feed is more entertaining than most comics. It is. It's amazing. He's a joy. And a nice guy, which we happen to know firsthand. Yeah, so. you guys had him on a while back. Yeah. So I have to say, though, I got to be completely honest. That scene in particular where... Zarsky and Fraction sort of show up. I didn't like it because I've been sold on this story of sex criminals. I've been reading it from the beginning and I was really into Kegel face and the, the sex police and what's really going on over there. And then that sort of intrusion felt so weird to me because I'm like, this book wasn't really doing metafiction before. I think there's this general problem with Fraction is that he always has to keep you at arm's length from emotions. He's a guy who can be smart but chooses to be clever most of the time, which is annoying. It's like, yes, I know you can do these things, but sometimes you've got to let people actually connect with the emotion of the moment and not just show them how clever you are. And it and it happens in all of these works that I've read. It's not the worst thing ever. You know, a clever writer is better than a stupid writer, but I would rather have a smart, emotional writer. Well, the problem with this scene is we don't know who came up with it, do we? Because like the tone of the scene actually led me to believe that Starsky did this. Because he imagines yeah. himself sitting on Matt as like a bench. Yeah. And yeah. Matt's got ball well, gag in his mouth. In particular. I'm talking about Fraction's work in general. I haven't... I'm way behind, like I said, on many things. Seth Criminals being one of them. This scene happens in the third book. I couldn't figure it out. I didn't understand, like, is this what we're doing now? Are we going to stick with that? Like, Susie Psychologist looks like Starsky now. And I don't know if that's intentional or what... I think it was, if I recall reading the back matter on it, that it it is supposed to look like an older grade Chip Zdarsky. So, yeah, I have no idea where this book's going. The title's been around for three years now, and it's only done 15 issues, but it's created this kind of like whirlwind phenomena around it, and I don't know if other image titles were doing letter pages before Sex Criminals came around, but I've definitely seen like every new title has letters pages in it now. Just, I don't know if that's because of just the reception of... Could be. I mean, I know that Saga had some, like, from the very beginning, but that was always more sort of, 
the tone of the letter pages in Sex Criminals is what makes it brilliant because every other letter pages is like, hey, we love this book. We have this question about this panel, whatever. And the, the letter pages in Sex Criminals are so good that they ended up publishing all of the letters as a separate volume. <laughs> that says something too, where they have these ridiculous conversations about sex every month or I guess as often as the book yeah, comes out. As often as the, yeah. Like I was saying, like I love the letter pages. I like the jokes in the margins of the letter pages, and just the way that the jo- the letters are answered. So, yep. Um, we're gonna do the Arkham Asylum Award for best breakout talent. Your favorite new talent this year. I chose Sarah Anderson. She's an alternative cartoonist. She had her first book, Adult Who Is a Myth, published this year. Now I have not yet had the book. It's on order right now. Thank you, Israeli Mail, for being late. Uh, but I just. <laughs> Her cartoons started popping up on my timeline this year, and they were just the funniest thing ever while being at the same time the truest thing ever. I think I shared one with you, the one with where she has her past self and her present self looking at all the work she has to do, and her present self going, well, if we divide it between ourselves, we can do it all in time, and her past <laughs> self just pushes the pile of paperwork on her and runs away, which is just, it's a, just an amazing gag. You know, an amazing visualization of exactly how life goes on, right? You're always like, I should have done that yesterday, but I didn't want to. And it's all done with a light touch, which sort of combines the adulthood as a myth. The idea that we're not quite ready as we think we are to the world. I'm going to uh, abstain from this category. Uh, Like I said, I've I've been really behind on comics in general this past year. So I really haven't found anything. Like really new talent that's really um well technically because the harvey picked him for best new talent you can say dan mora even though he's been working sure. for at least a year before <laughs> sure we'll go with dan mora i'm turning into the judge from celebrity deathmatch i'll allow it so my pick for best breakout talent is gail bertrand for a land called tarot this is an ongoing that is being published in island oh from uh, image th- comics the silent comic right it's a silent fantasy comic with artwork that is just stunning. Island has had very good artists before, but, you know, you brought up Ancestor, and Ancestor has really good art, but it's also very cosmic art, you know, like where things are so big and crazy that you can't really figure out what's going on. Bertrand's storytelling is so clear, even when he's showing these fantastic scenes and these amazing fantasy characters Everything is colorful, everything is so smooth and well told that it is silent. There isn't a word of dialogue, but you have no problems following it. You can pick and choose the quality of storytelling, but in terms of art, the guys who do the opening pages in Island, and it's different every month, are often better than the best that Marvel and DC has to offer throughout the entirety of that same month. There's no question. The people that are contributing to Island now are some of the most amazing. Bertrand in particular, you know, I'm naming him my breakout talent of the year because he's both writing and drawing, right? Writing in the sense that there's no written text, but he's constructing the story. And the world, jeez. So our next award is the Silver Bullet Award for Best One-Shot or Graphic Novel. And I don't think that anybody who's been listening to us this year will be surprised when I say that I'm giving this to Wonder Woman, The True Amazon by Jill Thompson. It is a rare thing for a creator, even someone as talented as Jill Thompson, to do yet another damn retelling of Wonder Woman's origin story, which we can all recite in our sleep by now. 
plus or minus a couple of details depending on what crisis has recently occurred. I think we can all recite the multiple uh, origins <laughs> of, Wonder, of Wonder Woman. I can give you three right now. Four origins this year. The Rocka one, the Delise one, True Amazon, and there was another one. I'm sure there was another. Oh, Earth One. Earth yeah. One came out this year. Four origin stories, and they wanted to do another one. They simply couldn't, so they moved it next year. And I'll bet you anything that the film is going to be an origin story, too, oh. and that there will be a comic adaptation of the film that retells that origin story. It's a lot. Max, I do not doubt that you could linearly tell all of these. You just have to use a lot of and slash or when saying it. But this one in particular caught my eye because so many writers, when given this task of retelling the origin story for the purpose of launching a new storyline, a new book, whatever, will just take the path of least resistance. And to some extent, Jill Thompson begins with that, right? We have, again, the whole story of Hippolyta and Hercules. They find the mascara. She wants a baby. Magical rain falls from the sky and animates this sand baby into an actual baby. But then she applies a kind of logic to it that I don't think anybody's ever done before. The idea that because she is the only child on the island and everybody adores her and she's a princess, she's a brat. And I mean like a real brat, the kind where you see at the mall and you thank God that you don't have kids. She actually has her sweet 16 birthday moment. Oh my god. Oh the whole comic is like Sweet 16. He's like, I wanted a pony. A more magical pony, please. Oh my god. Why doesn't this pony have a horn? Why doesn't it have wings? Just awful. Awful and yet makes so much sense, right? Of course she would be spoiled. She was the princess. And that journey from this spoiled, unsympathetic, irritating child to the beginnings of the character who is so admired in the DCU is something that Thompson manages really, really well, up to and including this redefinition of her somewhat campy, somewhat outdated uniform as marks of shame and guilt. She is basically done in by her pride in sort of the classic Greek way and causes the death of someone she cares about. And every aspect of her superhero costume ends up becoming a reminder of that. So the tiara that she wears is cursed. She can't take it off until she atones. The bracelets are those of as if to chain her to her guilt. The top that she wears belonged to the person whose death she caused. It's sort of this layer on top of layer on top of layer. And yes, it won't ever actually be anything because I don't know if Elseworlds still exists. But if it did, this would be one of them. Nobody's going to pick it up and run with it, but as a self-contained story, I really enjoyed it. It's probably one of the few mandated retellings of Origins that actually says, well, let's do something a little new with it. I mean, it's Wonder Woman. We all know this already. I'm going to actually segue into that with my uh, one-shot or graphic novel of the year, which is Wonder Woman Earth One. <laughs> so, this was a book that had been like hyped about or talked about for, I feel like, four or five years and, you know, it was always talked about, you know, it was going to be a superhero comic without any real, like, action scenes, which I'm like, okay, that's that's different just from, you know, trying to set Wonder Woman apart from, you know, Batman and Superman and the generic superhero action stuff. And we have another uh, telling of uh, Wonder Woman's origin, which I guess that beginning scene with Hercules is what the book gets its most criticism for. 
But um, Yannick yeah. Paquette's artwork in that book, and particularly in that beginning scene, is just beautiful. Where it's like, I don't care how long it takes for the next two books to come out. Like, if it's that same quality of art, you take all your time. I thought it was very interesting in comparison to how you were describing Wonder Woman's costume in the Joe Thompson one, how you see the evolution of Diana's costume within Earth-1 as she kind of has the more, like, traditional like Greek attire, and then when she goes and meets Candy and the other sorority sisters, they kind of give her, like, a more, quote-unquote, modern kind of look to it, where it's with, made up with more contemporary clothes. And you can make the argument that they're kind of sexualizing her, but I think you can kind of make the counter-argument is that she's kind of, like, embracing that sexuality about herself we're delving into topics that i don't think i'm qualified to talk about but that's kind of just <laughs> my when has that ever stopped the smorgasbord before yeah but i think it's just kind of like my view of what that story was trying to do i really liked how diana's so very young and she's coming into this world and when she goes to the hospital and you know people are dying around her and she's just like can't process the death that's going on it's like where's your purple ray technology help this grieving woman or whatever and, and without like, spoiling know, the end what she does at the end when she wins without throwing a single punch is a really impressive moment with all i have many criticisms for the book but that moment was impressive and um the interesting dynamics you get when you recast steve taylor as an african-american man were interesting just because you know i think it helped enforce just how different of a worldview she has and compared with modern sensibilities like she didn't understand the african-american history of slavery within the united states so you know she doesn't think there's anything wrong with the collar scene and i feel like morrison was really trying to capture uh the marston original ideas within his book and kind of just retool them for the present day while also acknowledging the differences or how some of it works but some of it doesn't yeah, it was kind of weird, though, that they made such a big deal out of the, the color scene, because why would Diana not understand slavery if she's descended from ancient Greek mythology, where even if she doesn't know what life in ancient Greece was like, the mythology and the religion has canonical slaves. These are things that actually exist in her. I think it was a book that was more interesting than good. Maybe the problem is it was way too short for its own good. 88 pages or something. And it tried to do so much with feminism and race relations and psychosexuality and the actual history of Wonder Woman as a comic character. But it will win points forever for redoing Etta Candy as Pam from Archer, which is the most <laughs> brilliant retake yep. on the character I've ever... It's yes. Pam from Archer. It's brilliant. It's an amazing idea. You could drown a toddler in my panties right now. That's Pam. I'm interested to see the portrayal of Candy in the uh, upcoming movie, but uh, I don't think it's going to be as uh, memorable as... <laughs> what are the odds that they would cast someone like Melissa McCarthy? Shallow. Shallow odds. If it wasn't set in like World War One, I, I would say probably very high. But I, I don't know. I feel like that she's kind of moved past supporting actress roles, so I don't think they could, really. Well, they should have cast her as Wonder Woman. That would have been interesting. It would have, wouldn't it? But I don't think DC fanboys are ready for that yet. Okay. I saw a tweet from uh, Tenehisi Coates today about, um, you know, he's written a lot about race and comics, and people get really uppity about race, but it does not compare to comic fans getting uppity about comics, apparently. Oof. I totally believe that. 
my pick. There have been many great and grand graphic novels this year. Many of them dealt with serious and important subjects. But then Lisa Trayman came in and drew 40 pages of Giant Days Holiday Special. And I'm like, what? Do other comics even <laughs> exist anymore? Should I care about them? I do not. Giant Days is one of my favorite ongoing series. It's the most fun series that overall, I think, ever existed in comic books. And when Lisa Triman draws it, it's legendary. And this year we had 40 pages of Lisa Triman art. And until you see her at work, until you see the results on the page, it's hard to explain what makes her so different and so much. Max Serin, the regular artist, she's a very good artist. But it's just that Lisa Triman is on a different level. And she just draws and you immediately charmed by every single thing on the page you're charmed by the way the characters move and behave and are designed and the way they dress you're charmed by the slapstick she can do stuff that's supposed to be unbelievable within the regular real world version of the story but makes it work because she's just that good of a cartoonist yeah i hate to make that comparison because of the whole behind the scenes drama but it is very similar to how after Rock Upchurch was removed from Rat Queens, for completely justifiable reasons, the book never quite felt the same. There were still parts of it that were good, but even with someone who was good like Sedgwick, the feel wasn't right. I don't want to undersell Max Serin, who is a very good artist uh, by her own right, and if she were drawing the series from issue one, I would be like, oh, it's that great artist, Max Serin, doing Giant Days, as she always done. It's just that, to me, it's more like, Whenever Morrison works with Quietly, and of course Quietly is late, and somebody else comes after Quietly. And even if it's the greatest artist that he can find at the time, even if uh, who followed uh, Quietly on Batman and Robin, was it uh, the guy who did Sea Guy? Cameron Stewart. He wasn't the direct follower, but he was one no, of them. No, no. Yeah, he was one of them. Like, Cameron Stewart is a great artist, right? But he's after Frank Quietly, so it's immediately like, you're not Frank Quietly. Part of me thinks that uh, Cameron Stewart might be a tulpa created by uh, Grant Morrison <laughs> to get a Quietly-esque artist to work with him. If he didn't exist, he'd have to invent him. But it doesn't work, right? You can't beat Quietly. And when it comes to cartooning, you can't beat Raymond. You just can't. And it's good for her that she her day job is like an animator at Disney because obviously it pays a lot more than comic books ever could. But it's, it's a shame for us because you can only draw like an issue a year. But damn, what an issue. I forget the, the exact title of the uh, category, but it is Best Performance by an Animal in a Comic The Poyo Award. The Poyo Award. The Poyo. All right, so I went with Master Ren from Monstrous, the, uh, the Necomancer, the multi-tailed um, kind of snark uppity cat wizard from uh, Monstrous, I think adds a lot of levity to the book. That uh, That book can get like pretty dark and bogged down at some times and um he keeps it kind of light but he also has alternative motives that you find out in the second arc so i'm interested to see where his exact loyalties lie he's also the gateway for more information about the world because at the end of every issue you have like the lectures that are oh yeah the little the notes yeah very interesting character um my pick for best performance by an animal is humpback whale from animosity this is an aftershock series by marguerite bennett and rafael de la torre this is an enormous humpback whale who can speak he's sentient and he believes he's a pokemon it's a one-page gag but it's hilarious. Animosity is basically the story about how uh, all over the world, animals gain sort of human-like intelligence. And, well, 
no spoilers, but it gets pretty insane. And at one point, the characters need to cross this very large body of water, and this enormous humpback whale jumps out and says, I'm a Pokemon, or something like that. And I was just like, yep, that's 2016. That's the winner. Well, since this category is called the Poya Award, and since Chu <laughs> drawn its final issue this year, and since we had the special one-off, the Demon Chicken Poya issue, it's Poyo. It's, it's the world's craziest, most violent chicken. It's the one time I can nominate him the last time, and it's got to yeah. be it. I feel like we can retire this now that Pollo's gone. <laughs> Pollo's never like, gone. <laughs> he will live on in our hearts forever. Either that or you guys will have to come up with a new title for... Damn it, now I want chicken. I'm hungry now. Yeah, I can well, go for well, some don't... Right <laughs> don't, don't try it. He'll don't try it with Pollo, though. He will eat you. So the next category is the People Who Need People Award for Best Relationship in Comics in 2016. And I have to give this to Alana and Marco from Saga. It's funny because I'm not usually the type who goes for the mushy romance that just keeps going on and on and on and on. Something about the way that Vaughn writes these two is so real. And we are 40, almost 50 issues in. And these characters are so amazing together. They never stop surprising me. They never stop giving me, like, the feels. You know, it's like Donald Glover in Community. My emotions! My emotions! And they're just amazing. And they manage to avoid... Granted that it's probably because this is not a superhero title specifically. If it were, you know, there would have been affairs, divorce, remarried, clones, whatever, right? That dynamic does not really work in that context. But if Han Solo and Princess Leia had actually been in Star Wars stuff for 40 years afterwards, like an actual couple, and the ups, the downs, the arguments, the the way that they are with each other and with Hazel just blows my mind every time. And I know, I know that I'm going to regret being so emotionally invested in this couple because it's Brian K. Vaughn. And I know that that's going to end badly, and I'm bracing myself for it even now, but at this point, I'm still into it. Yeah, I mean, they've avoided a lot of the, um, I guess, generic little plot points of a uh, superhero romance. There was that third arc, I believe, when they were hiding out, and um, she was playing as like the, the TV soap actress, and she was starting to use like drugs and such, where... That probably might have been like one of my least favorite parts of the arc or of the storyline so far, because there's hints that an affair could have happened, and um, but I guess that was just meant to show like you know the, the honeymoon period of the relationship was at its end and the stress of living undercover and such. But uh, it's been good. But yeah, and especially with well the last the last trade that I read, um, you find out um, Alana's pregnant again. That'll be interesting to see how that goes. One of the particular moments in that trade that amazed me was just in terms of how this couple works so well is Hazel is narrating this from the future. So she says something like, my parents had made this vow uh, uh, never to touch each other until they found me. And they go on this mission and they find out that Hazel's alive and they're heading towards her and they immediately have sex. And Hazel's narration is, well, they were never good at keeping vows anyway. <laughs> yeah. And that that felt like such a real moment. Yeah. Yeah. And just thought it was fantastic. Uh, my pick from adult drama to teen charm, well, mostly teen charm, uh, Bendette and Daniel from Bendette Aww. by Paul Tobin and Colleen Coover. It's so sweet. She, it is. Yeah, he loves her and she like, yeah, I like you. I really like you. 
And after, you know, after years of him pining for her, we saw this year what happens when her sweet Daniel is taken away from her and she goes on a rampage. Well, as much as rampage as someone, you know, as <laughs> committed, committed to nonviolence as Ben Dad is. And when they get together again at the end, she's like, oh, that's so sweet. It's like, it that's is. love, man. That's like young love. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Admittedly, you know, she's the world's greatest thief. He's a courier. And you nailed it in terms of there has been this progression in the entire series where he was pining after her. And that was adorable, too, because you were never really sure if she knew how he felt. But then at the end, the end of the last arc where they're just sitting on the rooftop together, I was like, oh, God, that's cute. And I will wrap this up with John and Susie from Sex Criminals. Our the third arc is finished now, and um, you've definitely seen their relationship progress way past like, hey, we can have sex and stop time and rob banks and save the library. And you are getting into um, John has some um, mental issues going on that are like kind of casually being explored, and that kind of becomes the black like, and white yeah. arc when he goes on the antidepressants was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, or every now and then it cuts to that like giant black box in the red room, which kind of has like a Twin Peaks uh, kind of vibe to it, which I know Fraction is a um, huge fan of, and as well as Matt Fraction having his own um, depression issues or something along those lines that uh, he sometimes talks a little bit about. And, you know, we've seen this relationship go through ups and downs and ups and downs and just them each wanting different things for different reasons and um i'm really interested to see like what the actual outcome of this storyline is part of me is like i don't know if they'll make it in the end but i'm gonna enjoy the ride to to get to the end even if it ends badly that will feel like it makes sense in the context of what's happening to them yeah yeah because it it could go either way but they've really laid the groundwork for you know these are complicated people and they work together, but only up to a point. Yeah, yeah. Tom, what's our next award? The MC Escher Award for Most Confusing Storyline. And if you don't mind, I'll begin. Because I know you'll protest, Sean. But this came out in January. The Collected Edition came out in January. So Black Jack Ketchum counts. Oh. <laughs> oh, gosh. I remember you guys talking about this. It oh, it's a four-issue surrealistic cowboy mystery where people walk around say cryptic stuff and then they skip scenes and then another cryptic thing happens the end i love grant morrison i loved ancestor i love weird atmospheric stuff but this was just nothing this was just a pile of what were you trying to say and if you were not trying to say anything what were the interesting visuals that you were trying to do what the characters that you were trying to establish were you trying to say anything about the west about america about the real life black jack catch i don't know i don't care I remember flipping through that book and being like Homer Simpson with the joke a day calendar. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Did the pages flip around in the reprint? <laughs> I don't know. Like maybe it's supposed to read the whole different way. I don't no. know. What you're supposed to do is feed it to a shredder and then throw the confetti up in the air and then it'll make sense. Sean, Sean, in the place where they shred comics, they will shred people too and that will be the Fargo remake we don't need. Oh, that book was bad, but I got one worse. Oh? So I am giving the most confusing storyline award to Doom Patrol by Gerard Way, Nick Darrington, and Tamara Bonvillain, courtesy of Young Animal. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, look. We're three issues in now, right? Flex Mentolo is here. Yep. 
I didn't need that. If I recall, wasn't he first introduced in Doom Patrol? Yes. He, he was, he was, but... Sean is not a fan of even the old Doom I Patrol. I didn't expect him to be coming back is the thing. And it turns out, and this was sort of like something that I was like, oh, God, please don't let this be true. But it happened. Way is writing this and situating it as a direct sequel to Morrison. Because Ooh. in the latest issue, these characters are talking about, you know, the last time I saw you, you were with Jane. They're talking about, like, Crazy Jane. And uh, we all went uh, to Denny the World, and now Flex Mentalo is here. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Not there. Do not go back there, because that didn't make sense the first time around. Now you want to go back to it? See, I disagree completely. I'm, I know you I'm do. really growing to like this new. I didn't like the first issue very much. By the time the third issue came in, I was like, it's not as good as Morrison's series, which I know you didn't like, Sean, but I think it's getting its own thing going. I really like the new. That's new not the, pro- the problem, though. Like, I could see it developing its own identity. My problem is, I have no idea what this book is about. We're three months into the launch, and I'm reading the third issue. And I'm like, what the F is this plot? Can someone explain to me what is happening here? Something about hamburgers and Danny is under attack and they're looking for this and they're looking for that. And Casey Brinks is sitting on the couch. And it's like, I don't know. I, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. A jagged fan complaining about burgers as a main plot point. Uh, well, no, but like <laughs> ev- they're evil burgers this time, apparently. I don't know. And <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the anti-jagged. That's why you don't like it. But the thing is that I know... I know that Way is doing this on purpose, right? I know that it is being configured as a deliberate homage to Morrison's run because he is dropping these references and he is bringing these people back on purpose. No one is ever going to write Rachel Pollack or whoever came after her uh, a tribute into Way's run. If he was going to reference anyone, it was going to be Morrison. Fine, but to dive headfirst in your first arc into like, I mean, when you're dealing with Flex Mentolo, you're dealing with the furthest reaches of how weird Morrison was back then. Not the Invisibles level, admittedly, but he was pretty far out there on Doom Patrol towards the end. And if you want to do that move, save it for issue 12. Save it for issue 20 when people know what this story is about. I have no clue. I still haven't figured out what the deal was with that angel that died at the end of the first issue. A blue blood everywhere, and they keep cutting back to the chief. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I love that joke. I... Is it a joke? I have no idea what it means. It, well, it's a plot point and a joke. So I haven't read uh, Morrison's original Doom Patrol run. It's one of the, like the few like big works of his I haven't run. I have the first trade of it sitting on my uh, nightstand. I got it as a, as a Christmas present. But I've noticed... Like you said, like there's that deep callback to Flex Mentalo. Um, I read an issue or two of the new uh, Constantine series after Rebirth happened, and they reference Maps, who is a side character that Warren Ellis introduced in his very short run. He was a subway worker in London who has uh, like magical powers and whatever. And I was like, really? You're cutting deep. Then to so like to go for like a Warren Ellis character who appeared in like two issues of his twelve issue run, so I feel like that's what they're they're trying to make use of that DC history, which is what originally like got me into like DC because DC has like you know seventy some years of back history and whatever, and I feel like with fifty two they try to dump all of that, and now that post rebirth yeah. they're kind of like let's bring that stuff back that people originally like people like the callbacks i mean so it's a it's a balancing act between pleasing old fans with like 
callbacks because nerds love references and being accessible to um, new readers. Because, you know, I have, I have a friend who's reading uh, Doom Patrol right now. I do not believe she has read the original Morrison run, and she's really enjoying it. See, this is the thing. I don't have an objection in principle to the idea of let's bring back elements from the past because everybody remembers those anyway. Like the thing that we always talk about when we bring up, you know, Crisis 52, whatever, just because DC rewrites their continuity doesn't mean that the readers forget what happened. We know. We still have memories that go beyond last month. So the act of bringing these things in is not that much of a problem, I think. But what Way is doing here is like diving headfirst into the tail end of Morrison's run with direct callbacks to things that happened in that run. And I'm like, okay, you haven't even established the premise of your series yet. There's some kind of threat. We still don't know. Like the, the story begins with Robot Man shrunken to a city that is living in a taco. Yeah, that's, that's a Morrison. Yeah. Sure, sure. But then that hasn't come back yet. I haven't managed to sort of piece together a basic understanding of there's a plot here that is not just insert random event A, insert random event B, look at how crazy this is. And the artwork has been doing a great job. You know, Darrington and Bonvillain are doing great at presenting these really cool and weird iconography. But if you were to ask me now, like, Sean, can you summarize the first three issues of Doom Patrol? I, I mean, I'd start sounding like I was possessed. For me, Doom Patrol right now is one of the things they're doing, yes, confusing, but confusing right. It sounds like, you know, it might read better in, like, as a trade, which, you know, like a lot of Morrison stuff, where you can look at it as an entire big picture and being like, oh, okay, I see what's happening here now, which kind of goes into what my most confusing storyline for the MC Escher Award is. So I have Providence by Alan Moore and Jason Burroughs. <laughs> Did it end this year? It has one issue left, and it continually gets more ridiculous. So Providence is the story of this writer, Robert Black, who goes to find like the true America in New England and kind of goes on a, a journey and encounters various direct Lovecraft elements of, like, um, there's an issue where it's, it's um, Herbert West Reanimator or... Um, the Dunwich Whore, and they're not like the names are slightly changed, but you can obviously know what it's trying to represent. And eventually, he actually meets H.P. Lovecraft, and he's been taking um, notes as like he's been going up throughout this, and increasingly gets more and more bizarre because like some lost time and time travel starts happening, and then um, he has like a mental breakdown after. Um, actually encountering an avatar of Nyarlathotep, who's kind of like, you are the avatar for which we will come into this world. And um, he gives his notes to Lovecraft, who ends up, like, writing them down as stories. So it, then it kind of, like, jumps, like, forward with how people are getting enamored with, like, the Lovecraftian elements. And then it starts making callbacks to Courtyard and Neonomicon. Or, <laughs> oh, no! or makes references to them. Sean's favorite series of all time. Triggered. Neonomicon. Triggered. Triggered. <laughs> So basically, Alan Moore's like, I read everything about Lovecraft I can find. And it's not like, look at my references, like the Black Dossier from League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is. But it's still, it's like, it's definitely something I'm going to have to sit down when it's all done and collected. Because each individual issue has like eight pages of Robert Black's diary of him dealing with like um, 
his homosexuality and he's actually Jewish and he's having visions of what can be implied to be like the Holocaust is going to happen soon. So there's like this whole big underlying everything. So it's it's kind of like the Watchmen of Lovecraft, kind of. That's that's probably like very, very generous, but um I think I really want to read this series when it's completed, simply because I'm very curious, but it sounds to me Whenever people talk about uh, Moore's Avatar stuff, it sounds to me like, A, he has a point to make, which is an essayist point, but because he's a comics writer and he needs the cash, he writes it in comics form, when obviously he just wants to write a big, large essay. Sorry. Hey, Jerusalem's <laughs> available if you want to go read that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the man just wrote like a million-word <laughs> book. What does yeah. he possibly need comics to make a point for? No, but not a story, a literal essay about Lovecraft in America. And B, the reason why it can never be Watchmen is that he doesn't have a Dave Gibbonson, right? He has a Jason Barrows on it, who is a decent artist for Avatar's house style. I had a nice internet talk with, I think it was Joe McCullough, the critic. I'm not sure. About... You've been cheating on me, Tom? Not not a podcast, just a talk on the internet, that's all. And I came to the A conclusion, not the conclusion, A conclusion that Moore's best work is that when he has an artist on a high caliber, not just someone who can execute all these intricate plot points, but someone who can challenge him. Uh, one of my favorite things about From Hell is reading the script book where um, Eddie Campbell is showing off all of Moore's detailed plotting in like 200 words per every panel, and then he writes at the end of it. But then I decided it wasn't very good, so I did my own thing. A novice artist just can't do that. When you're a Jason Barrows and you get another Moore script, you're like, yes, sir, what you've written is what I'll do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, Eddie Campbell with his like thousand-page panel descriptions down to his little sketches and um i believe jason burroughs was also the um artist for new namicon and uh uh, the courtyard and just looking back at those his artwork definitely has improved and i can kind of see why more went with him on all three because there's definite architectural carryovers between the books it's making me kind of want to revisit both of those once this is finished because i feel like it might give me more insight into what more was trying to do with this but right it, it might be more clear in retrospect but given that we're talking about lady era more it could yeah. just as easily i mean it, did you read the end of neonomicon yes didn't help did it was very clear it was just very repulsively clear for a lot of people and as yeah. much as i like neonomicon for particular reasons but when people told me it's disgusting and repulsive i'm like well yeah i can't fault you on that it's intentionally disgusting and repulsing Okay, so uh, Max, you want to take us to the next sure. award? Sure. Here we have the Middleman Award for Most Painful Cancellation. And I actually went with a webcomic that I've been reading for several, several years now, um, Dr. McNinja, written and drawn by Christopher Hastings and colored by Anthony Clark. If you're not aware, uh, Dr. McNinja is a three-page-a-week story about a doctor who is a ninja who has like an Irish background, hence the name. So he's had a number of like crazy adventures over the years as a, like it originally started off with like um people having lumberjacks disease where they uh turn into like 70 foot tall lumberjacks and are rampaging throughout the town and his secretary is a gorilla named Judy and he gets a sidekick who is a Mexican boy riding a velociraptor named Bandito with a big like bushy mustache and it's a hilarious comic it's got a lot of just fun sci-fi elements it's been going on since like i think 2004 so a good number of years now and it's originally it was in black and white then eventually went to color 
and Christopher Hastings started writing for Marvel on just like weird little miniseries a couple years ago, and he's been getting increasingly like more and more work with them. So it was announced, I think, like earlier this year or maybe like very, very late last year that the series was coming to a close. And um, from where the comic is right now, just reading it this morning, it's nearing, it's probably like 10 to 15 pages maybe. So it's a comic I very much have enjoyed. It was one of the first web comics I got into. Uh, some of the other ones that I read from early on, I've set stopped reading because of quality or just not enjoying where the story was going. But for Dr. McNinja, it's definitely still, you know, something I look forward to every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I'm, I'm going to be very sad to see this strip finish. Um, my pick for most painful cancellation was Eight House. This was a project that really could have succeeded if it had been managed better. And I feel bad that I'm pointing the finger of blame at Brandon Graham, but this was a fuster cluck of epic proportions. The original conceit, as it was explained to image readers, was simply that this was going to be an ongoing series, or I think, no, it started as a 12-issue anthology title that would rotate between four different storylines. And it was going to construct this shared fantasy universe within Image Comics from Under Mountains by Marion Churchland was going to be part of it. And they were going to explore these different aspects of this world. The ongoing, I think, only got to issue five, never actually completed any of their stories. Uh, Mirror by Emma Rios ended up splitting off into its own series and dropping the Eight House banner, so to speak. The whole thing just came apart in spectacular fashion. To this day, no one's explained why. There hasn't really been a mea culpa or a postmortem talking about what went wrong here, but it really did bother me when Graham finally said, yeah, okay, we're dropping the Eight House title from all of the books. They're all going to be completed at some future point. Nobody knows when, where, how, why. It frustrated me because, you know, the other project that Graham has been highlighting so far, Island, I live in fear of its cancellation every month. But so far, it's still here. And Eight House just collapsed. And I feel like there is room in the current image bibliography, as it were, like what they're putting out right now. They do have a small space, not a very big one. Don't start tying in all of these books together so we have to start reading all of them. But they could have launched two, three, four books that are related to each other and are not superheroes. Well, they have the thing at, I think, Top Cow, the Edenfall, Postal, uh, Think Tank. Those all exist in the same universe. Tom, you were falling asleep as you were reciting those names. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on. Uh, no, but like... Now, they- eight- Eight House is in another one of my categories and not one of the good ones. And history will show that I love Brandon Graham. Uh, history and the present. You know, I picked some of his output for this show. I love Brandon Graham. I think he's doing an amazing work in advancing young and new talent and pushing the right people forward. But I think that was A, he took on himself, he and Amarius took on themselves a bit too much and B, the numbering system for that thing was confusing and if you only want to read like one story by one team you had to read the other stories by other teams and nobody wanted that it was just bad show all around uh i'm happy to say though that what i thought would be my pick has been sort of uncancelled huh. because uh transformers versus gi joe well it had low sales 
what to be expected from a Tom Seeley Transformers project, I'm afraid. And it ended with issue 13. I'm like, well, this would be my sad cancellation. It was a great series, but I wish I could have more of it. But then, as I opened up the IDW March solicitation just recently, lo and behold, Transformers vs. G.I. Joe is back for a special. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, Primus. Oh, Kirby. <laughs> oh, God. I love you. Thank you very much. So I'm happy to say that nothing is painful for me. I have no pains. So our next award is the Dolly Parton Award for the biggest bust of 2016. And I don't think that my pick is going to come as a surprise to anybody. This continues to be the Inhumans push at Marvel. It just amazes me how they have continuously and consistently failed to get the overall Marvel readership to embrace the Inhumans as a substitute for the X-Men. And... I was thinking about it in the context of sales charts, I'll I'll mention them in a bit, but if nothing else, it shines a very interesting light, I think, on just how small Marvel's bag of tricks really is. They have tried everything to get the Inhumans out there. They have tried solo books, they've tried guest star roles, they've tried putting the Inhumans front and center in various crossover events, they've brought in high-profile writers, they brought in Charles Soleil, because you might as well... And yet, according to the sales chart that Xavier Lancel posted on The Beat, in November, the highest selling Inhumans ongoing was Uncanny Inhumans at a little bit over 20,000 copies. That's 114 in the top 300. And Marvel have not responded to this beyond doubling down again and again and again in Humans versus X-Men, and now this character's Inhuman and that character's Inhuman. All the while denying the tin hat conspiracy theory about, you know, the X-Men and Fox and the rights and all that. But I don't know what to make of that. It's silly to say this, but there hasn't been another viable explanation for what this nonsense is. Other than the whole Ike Perlmutter, the rights, Inhumans, substitute the X-Men, all of that. I don't know what to make of it. But I can't deny that every strategy from the limited pool that Marvel seemed to have has failed because the Inhumans are not catching on. The movie has been canceled and shifted over to television where I'm sure nobody's going to watch it because even Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it's not like we all sit there and tune in and the entire world is into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Not so much. It just isn't working and they keep pushing it again and again and again. No matter what they do, they are trying to rewrite the past Not in the sense that, you know, let's retcon this event or whatever, but like rewrite what people remember of the Inhumans. There's a reason they're not catching on. The Inhumans were always C-listers. They had, as far as I remember, as far as I've ever heard anybody talk about the Avengers, it's always that Jenkins run. Which was a miniseries with a beginning, middle, and end. That's it. Yeah, but when was that? That was like 2000, 2001? Yeah, the, the beginning of Marvel Knights. So that was 800 years ago. And no one has come up with a viable alternative way of telling in human stories beyond let's land their castle in the bay and make Ms. Marvel an inhuman because then... They're great supporting characters. They're a great concept to be used. Are they though? I really like them as a supporting cast, as a concept to appear in other series when they first appeared in Fantastic Four by Kirby. But that's their appeal, and it's a limited appeal. You don't need it. You don't need a whole ongoing, two ongoings, three ongoings, four ongoings, ding, 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 for the whole shebang. 
they have had very limited success with individual characters. Like when Lockjaw teamed up with Ms. Marvel, I thought that was the cutest thing in the world. And it really was. But Lockjaw is one character. He's also a giant dog, which, you know, it immediately makes people laugh. But who has time for, like, let's talk about the intricate policies of Black Bolt and Maximus and Medusa? Who cares? Look, it's Burning Guy. It's Teleporting Guy. It's the other Teleporting Guy. Just primed and ready for their own brand new ongoing series, which will be cancelled four issues from now. There's a panel in um, Civil War II when the Inhumans show up and Tony Stark goes like, oh, look, the Inhumans are here. And it's like it very much feels like that is what <laughs> is going on right now. Even Ben, this is like, oh, good, the Inhumans are here. But um, to the extent that which, you know, you see like t-shirts reproducing like classic marvel covers and they've removed the x-men characters and have replaced them with inhuman characters it's like you're not fooling anyone with what you're trying to do here marvel we know it's because you don't have the rights you know they recently um announced the next marvel vs. capcom fighting game and the x-men characters have always been very 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 popular in those games and that was the whole fans were like wondering was like, are they going to still have those characters in the game based off of what's currently going on? Because the talk about it was like, oh, no, we're going to try to align the character roster based off of what people know from the movies. And just to sort of add on to that, Max, are you into video games at all? Um, Tom isn't. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah, I, I mostly do PC gaming. I do some video games with on PS4 with, with some of my friends, though. So, oh, thank God. Another PC gamer. Anyway, but the thing is. In terms of video games at all, the X-Men have basically been persona non grata. The only game that came out in 2016 that had X-Men characters was Marvel Ultimate Alliance 2, and that was a re-release of an old game. Yeah. So yeah. they have not been... Marvel themselves have sort of laughed off the whole conspiracy theory about the rights, saying, no, it's not true, they're still here, they're in limbo, whatever. But they're not turning up in any media, anywhere. And you know what, you know what? It's their comics. They can do whatever they want with it. They can try and downplay the X-Men. I may not like it as an old X-Men fan, but it's their prerogative. But if you're going to replace it, replace it with something worthwhile, because right now, and when I say right now, I mean over the last four years, they are flailing and flailing with it. They could do better than my superpower is hair. That's Beyonce's power. <laughs> uh, Max, what's your pick for biggest bust? My biggest bust of the year is... Uh... Batman vs. Superman. Oh, which, yes! Yeah, did you forget that? That, that, yes! that was 2016? I've never watched it all the way to the end, so I don't feel comfortable just pointing my finger and going, bang, you're dead. I do. I'll do that with you, Max. I'm with you on this. Go okay, so I try to maintain my optimism about this movie, like, through and through. I wanted this movie to succeed so bad, even though that, like, I absolutely hate the idea of heroes fighting heroes. I just... Do not enjoy it at all, especially when, you know, you have a world in which you have the villains or whatever, and I don't even know where to really begin on this dang movie. I feel like enough has really already been said about it. You didn't find the jar of tea shocking and amazing? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so in my in my, uh, in my my free time, um, my friends and I do a uh, bad movie podcast where we kind of do like a joke commentary like MST3K or Rip Tracks, but we also talk about like the movie as a whole, like, oh, I like how this was shot, or I like the... Um, effects here and such like that and i think we've outlawed we're not going to do bvs because we are not going to sit there for two and a half hours and try to talk about that movie in a somewhat positive light while also making jokes because it's just 
it's painful. We're going to do Suicide Squad next week because we are, we're having a guest on who just, like, dismantled that movie overall, and it should be enjoyable, but... Had you seen it? Suicide Squad? Yeah, I saw it. Well, theaters. how can you see something... Because sort of the golden question is which was worse, and I honestly don't know. Which one was worse? I went into Suicide Squad expecting it to be a pile of hot garbage, so... And there were um, things about Suicide Squad that I enjoyed. I liked El Diablo. I wanted more El Diablo. I wanted more Katana, more Captain Boomerang. Of course, I did not get that. I liked the Enchantress's aesthetic and like how they had her transform and stuff like that. But overall, no. Bad movie. Bad, bad, bad movie. Couldn't care less about Harley Quinn. I don't need another Joker. Halfway through the movie, I forgot what the plot was. I was like, why are they in this city again? So, so did they. It's okay. They forgot it too. It's all right. <laughs> but yeah, BVS just... I think it's going to have... It's going to have repercussions for DC's movies that are going to just spiral out that will always be like overhanging the next movies they make kind of like batman and robin in the 90s spider-man 3 those were both movies that had like really discernible effects on the films like batman and robin like it pretty much like killed off superhero movies for a while they were still there but they weren't being celebrated as superhero movies you know you had like blade afterwards which was very very good but it wasn't like you know a comic book movie or the x-men where it was very like no one was flashy everyone was just wearing black leather and you'd then, rather i wore yellow spandex like yeah. ha, ha, ha. ha 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 yeah yeah and then with spider-man 3 it's like look how many villains we can put in one movie and then that kind of was the trend for a little bit it's even worse now because because they tried to adopt the marvel way of doing things with these movies having created this very ugh aesthetic with Batman v Superman, they actually can't back out of it now. Yeah. They're, they're committed to it, and they will run it through whether it works or not. They can't just flip the aesthetic or the, or the design so quickly. If they want to get away from it, it's going to have to be over a series of movies. Yep. Tom, what was your biggest bust? Well, like you said, Eight House. And it's because I don't really care about the movies. They're, for me, just a spin-off product. And most of the bad comics I can see coming a mile away. Obviously, a bad comic will be a bad comic. It's a bad writer, a bad artist. I, I'm not going to put something like Civil War 2 because obviously it's, it was going to be bad. But 8 House, man. 8 House was my light. I was looking forward to 8 House. And then it came out. And only two of the actual series started out very good. And Arclight is very good. But then it got delayed. And the other series weren't up to snuff. And the ones that ended weren't the best. And the ones that were the best just got stuck in a limbo. And the numbering was confusing. And I'm a very meticulous person in my boxes and on my shelf. And I'm like, no, you can't just change the name in the middle. How am I supposed to put it? <laughs> is it Adels? Is it in the numbers? Or is it just Arclight? Am I supposed to put it in A now? Don't do this to me, please. Oh, yeah. And... I, I really hate that. <laughs> Tom, st- do not collect any Marvel books. <laughs> Everything I, is volume one. one of the reasons I'm not doing that, but... <laughs> I don't want to point the bad finger at them because these are good people obviously doing their best and aiming for something grand, but they just didn't achieve it. It just didn't work. And and in many ways, it's worse than bad people doing bad stuff is that when good people are doing good effort and just don't manage their, their expectations. We have two awards left. Last year, we ended on kind of a downer. I think what we should do now is flip the order, start with the bad one and then end on a high note. All right. So the next award that I'd like us to do is the Mushu Award for Most Dishonorable Mention. Max, why don't you go first? All right. So I have the DC Pakistanian editorial snafu 
of January of this year. So DC started the year off on a high note, or a low note, of uh, having um, a caption from the Superman One Woman Annual Number 2, the caption box reading, translated from Pakistanian. Pakistanian's mm. not a language. People speak Urdu in Pakistan. And Pashto, or, and a couple other dialects. But that was just a... I don't know how that passes by editorial, especially on an annual, which, you know, that's like a big issue. It costs a couple dollars more. You want to make sure that, or you should make sure the quality and everything is up to snuff for those. So I, for me, that that is an inexcusable offense on DC's part, especially in, I think it shows, it reinforces the stereotype of how um, Americans view the Middle East. So Probably doesn't help that they have had certain controversies with their editorial office already. So on exactly. top of possibly covering up crimes, they're also completely incompetent. Pakistanian. Ugh. Tom, what was yours? Uh, we're going to stick with the DC theme here. <laughs> Rebirth number one for daring. Having the gall and the balls to just say, you know what's wrong with superhero comics? Watchmen is the problem. <laughs> Watchmen's to blame. Ellen Moore's to blame. Dave Gibbons to blame. They are responsible for all the darkness there. And the fact that the man pointing the finger, the man riding this claptrap, was Jeff cut off one hand and cut, then cut off two more <laughs> Johns. It's unbelievable. It's just, it's not the pot calling the kettle black. It's. I don't have even a metaphor. It's a black hole looking at the uh. sun saying, you're blacker than me. No! No, no boy. No! Oh, my God! Watchmen <laughs> is not the problem. You are the problem. And you know what? Fine. Fine. Whatever. Whatever. But doing it in the very same year, when DC is releasing the $125 Watchmen Collected Edition, you can't just keep on pointing the finger and saying, Alan Moore, is anything wrong with comics? while sucking on his teeth forever. And also uh, having Frank Miller on the payroll for Dark Knight 3. Whoop. You can't do that. You can't point your finger at Ellen Moore and saying he's the problem with comics. We're trying to change direction and then base 10% of your sales on his old works that you still have in print. What would DC do without Watchmen in the Dark and The Killing Joke? I don't know. They would have nothing to copy from. Well, without The Killing Joke, they wouldn't have made that horrible movie. See, oh yeah. Jesus. So there's that. Uh, so I'll break the uh, the trend here, and my dishonorable mention this year goes to readers, specifically the ones that harass Chelsea Kane and Jordi Belair. Oh yeah, shame on you, internet people. Shame on you. Shame on you. Dishonor on you. Dishonor on your cow. Here's the thing. And I know that I've said this before, but I I'm just like it keeps coming up again and again. There have been. For years, for decades, certain cultural stereotypes that are attached to people who read comics in the way that we do, right? Fans, whatever you want to call them. Certain stereotypes, you think of the the comic book guy from The Simpsons, right? As a particular image of, this is what non-comics readers people think we all are. Why? 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 Do Twitter morons have to keep proving that stereotype true? Why do they have to bring all of us down and throw the most ridiculous tantrum? Chelsea Kane said this on her Twitter before she shut it down. You know, she has been a novelist for X amount of years. She comes to comics. She has one cover 
that says, ask me about my feminist agenda. And it's like someone opened Pandora's box. What the hell was that even supposed to be? And then immediately afterwards, Jordi Belair said that she was being harassed. I didn't see the tweets. Something happened, right? Because she ended up quitting Twitter as well. What are you people doing? What are you doing? What's your mental age? Is there still a no girls allowed sign that I miss? It disgusts me to say this because I don't agree with it. I know, I see where they're coming from, right? It's all this toxic resentment that they have that for X amount of years, they were bullied or harassed or whatever for liking comics. And then all of a sudden comics are cool and everybody wants to do them and they feel whatever they feel. That's fine. Stew in your juices and find a way to be okay with it. Do not take it out on other people. Because when they do that, all they are doing is, first of all, they're perpetuating the stereotypes. Because mm-hmm. now whenever, whenever anybody wants to say, you know, comic book readers are neckbeard trolls who are deeply afraid of women, exhibit A, exhibit B. Yep. They have proof. And on top of that, Every time, the response has always been to try and legitimize comics in the mainstream, right? To say, look, it's real literature, it's real stories, we have great writers, we have great artists, we're not just, uh, you know, people flying around in body condoms or whatever the hell Warren Ellis used to call it, right? Like, there's more to it than that. And then this. You add the Eddie Berganza thing on top of it, and Scott Alley on top of that, and, and everyone that the industry is protecting. And on the other hand... Axel Alonso going up in public at a convention and saying, I am the furthest thing from an SJW. You just aligned yourself with Breitbart, you gibbering idiot. It amazed me. On the one hand, Marvel did not support their own talent that was being harassed because I know that Marguerite Bennett also got some of this for Angela. She must have. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unsolicited opinions about Israel. Yeah. I would not be surprised. And then every single time, it, it, you could set it to a clock at this point. It's the same rhetoric coming up over and over and over again. And the executives and the people in charge do nothing. They leave the defense of their employees to other employees. Or sometimes they'll let Brian Bendis act like a moron and go to Chelsea Kane. Oh, no, what's happening to you now has nothing to do with comics. Bullshit. Yeah. I mean, these, these are your fans, right? These are your readers. They're getting this from you. And it just pissed me off. Like, I was mad about the Chelsea Kane thing, but then Jordi Belair... Like, Jordi Belair? You're harassing Jordi Belair? Is there a single better colorist in the industry? A, a more overworked one? If you're reading comics, one of your favorite comics is colored by Jordi Belair. That's a fact. That's a statistical fact. You are giving Jordi Belair money! If she had taken the step of saying, I'm quitting comics because of this harassment... A whole lot of books that y'all like would be canceled or like take a sudden dip in quality because they had to replace the colors at the last minute, right? It's a constant source of shame and embarrassment on my part that I am seeing these idiots bring all of us down because the larger culture doesn't care about the particulars of an incident, right? It doesn't matter. Chelsea Kane did nothing to deserve harassment, but that doesn't change the fact that, you know, when you report that story afterwards, it's like, Comics fans harass a noted novelist off the internet. Great. Great PR for our tiny, minuscule corner of popular culture. So, dishonor on all of them. Final category. Yes. Now, you see, now we can go upwards <laughs> and end on a high note. Yeah, the Lieutenant Worf Award for most honorable mention. Max, do you want to start? 
Sure. My entry is DC uncanceling Omega Men and uh, letting that story come to a close. So here, here. Um, oh yeah. Definitely one of my favorite titles of this year. I, I waited for the trade because um, Omega Men were not a property I was really familiar with, and by the time that it had been making waves, it had been canceled, and then it was uncanceled, and then I'm like, oh, this must be a very good title. People are this passionate about it, and DC is uncanceling it, which I can't recall a title being done like that in, in recent memory, and as, as well as all the good press Tom King was getting from uh, The Vision and stuff such as that. So... Um, Kudos to DC for letting the story be told. Uh, as Tom said, when you guys were reviewing it, um, the second half feels a little rushed, like it could have been. No, no, Sean said it. That was me. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, Tom I disagrees with me. I, I thought it was as perfect <laughs> as it is. I was like, mwah. Just a little bit at the tail end feels a, a tad rushed, but I, know I just love the overall story of what it was doing about how you're not always in the always in the right, and they're not always in the wrong. You're not always good, they're not always evil, and it really was one of those books where um, I don't want to see Kyle Rayner used for a good long while unless it's by Tom King in a similar kind of uh, story. It makes all like the little Earth-based conflicts seem so small in comparison, kind of like Annihilation versus Civil War. When Nova comes back and he's talking with Tony Stark and he's like, oh yeah, we heard about something going on and Nova's like, billions of people died while you were having your petty <laughs> squabbles about your registration or whatever. Yeah, if you take these characters and displace them and you put them in Citadel space, you could do whatever you wanted with them. And you would not be bound by, because in DC's Earth, you're not going to blow up North America or drown Florida or do something dramatic. Sean, the last time Sean, they tried that... Don't give them Kang, ideas. Don't give no, them no. ideas. But they wouldn't do it, right? Kang blew up Washington, D.C. one time. Did that matter to anybody? No. So the whole transfer to like outer space and alien civilizations really let them cut loose. I do wish, though, with Tom King, I wish that we knew the specifics of what happened there because there's a couple of different interpretations, right? Some people are saying, you know, this was fan pressure... Because Omega Men specifically was a book that was promised to reach 12 issues as part of uh, DCU. Yeah. It was marketed that way from the start, and then they were going to cancel it early. And then, so was it fan pressure? Was it Tom King's rising profile that they didn't want to alienate him? Was it a an editorial change? Did Dan DiDio suddenly realize that DC were publishing a good book? See, what happened is that in the middle of a management meeting... Tom King just strolled into the meeting, sat in front of the video, was like, I was in the CIA. Cancel my book. See how long, <laughs> see how long you make it. See like, how- all of a sudden, weird things start happening to Dan DiDio throughout the day. Like, his air conditioner starts putting out cyanide by accident one day, and then his car blows up after he walks away from it. And he's just sort of like, hmm, maybe I should uh, un- uncancel, uncancel. Yeah. <laughs> when DC or Marvel can do cosmic stories where they're so set apart, from um, the main Earth, that's when I think they really shine. Half the reason Annihilation is so good, or the reason I enjoy it, it is, it is my like perfect Marvel crossover, is because it's so set apart from everything else, and it gets to do all these crazy things of you know strapping Galactus to a spaceship and using him to eat planets and stuff like that. <laughs> so, and then when you have like, but now like the Guardians of the Galaxy are stranded on Earth because they the one lone spaceship that Earth has was like destroyed or whatever. No, uh, my pick uh, is Island to counterbalance Eight House being a bust, 
Island is the, the honorable mention, the Brandon Graham and Amarius comic magazine, which does amazing work promoting new and young talent, people like Lando, like Bertrand, like Ward, like Grim Wilkins. These are people I've never heard of before, but after reading their stuff on Island, I want to read everything else that they will do in the future. And it's important, I think, for this industry that's so preoccupied with what has been before. When we see award shows, even our own award shows, let's be honest, it's mostly people you've heard of before. So I think it's important you have this place that says, no, we're bringing in the new, we're bringing in the young, we're showing you the way to the future. And yes, sometimes, you know, the way to the future is a bumpy road. Uh, we keep on bringing up the one issue that was 50% fairy gay porn. <laughs> Which you, know, <laughs> which, you know what? It wasn't my favorite story, but I'm amazed. I'm happy that in this day and age, you can publish it on a title by a company as big as Image. You can say like, yeah, sure. Sure, this is what this guy does. And this is what he'll do here. He doesn't have to censor himself. He doesn't have to do something that hints at it. No, this guy is a gay fairy porn artist. We're bringing him in to show what he does. And what he does is gay fairy porn. Have at you, sir. It's okay if it's not for you. First of all, if it's an anthology title, there's probably something else in the issue that appeals to you. Second of all, all of these stories usually end up getting collected anyway. So just buy the trade of the stuff that you like. It's like, okay, I'm not the intended audience for gay furry porn, but I'm not going to rampage against Island because it has it. You know, just turn the page. Yeah, I, I think that's something that more comic fans need to accept is that there are books that are not for you. Like, I'm not reading Islands, but I've heard good things about it. And uh, Warren Ellis plugged uh, Habitat by yes. uh, Roy Simon in his newsletter. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to check that out. If it caught Warren Ellis's interest, maybe it's worth mine as well. And it's only like $10 for the trade here. But definitely, like, I've recently, like, accepted that, you know, there are a lot of, like, high-profile books which are getting all these, like praise that just aren't for me like um bitch planet i think is the uh is the number one of that I'm like i can see why this story means so much to a lot of people but it's touching on themes and stuff that i can't resonate with and i shouldn't have to force myself to enjoy it when i know i'm clearly not the person this book's intended for or like um i read the the free comic book day issue of archie which i know you guys are both a big fan of but I've been out of high school for so long, and it was totally just a bunch of like high school drama. And I'm like, that's not something I really want to read about in my late 20s, you know. So it's I can accept it's not the book for me. Great creative team, but just not the title for me. And I think every comic fan feels like I'm a supporter of this industry. Every single thing that comes out has to be tailored for my views or my interests. And anytime that there's some sort of outrage on Twitter about what a creator is doing on some title. It's not on a huge title like Iron Man or Captain America. It's on some small niche kind of thing like, you know, Mockingbird or Angela or Islands or what have you. Stuff that is not A-list and is never going to be involved in some kind of crossover event where people have to read it anyway. Yeah. It, it tends to be sort of isolated titles. The thing about that perspective of not every book is for me First of all, you're absolutely right, but even economically it makes sense. Because, I mean, these books are damn expensive. You don't have to buy all of them. The ones that don't interest you, just don't buy them. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of time the 
the titles people are getting outraged by, they weren't even reading them in the first place, most likely. Oh, yeah. They're just, like, more, like, offended that it exists. Uh, to You talked about the readers before, and I held my breath because you were having such a beautiful meltdown, Sean. <laughs> the thing that I have with a lot of comic readers is that they're angry in the name of the medium or the genre in case of superheroes while knowing absolutely nothing about it. I've lost count about how many Twitter arguments I had with people saying superhero comics should just be for fun. There, is, should, there shouldn't be anything political about it. Are you serious? <laughs> At which point I have, I already have like a saved file of art. <laughs> like 1990s showing, showing something. 1980s showing the X-Men. 1970s showing Green Lantern, Green Arrow. 1960s, oh my God. 1960s showing Kirby. Going all the way back. You know what was the first superhero political comics? Action Comics number one and doing the picture of <laughs> Superman shaking a US Senate, a corrupt senator and threatening him. You're defending this thing that exists only in your head. It was always political. It was always had things that weren't for you or that weren't off your opinion. And it's fine. Yeah. If you think a liberal mindset is new to comics in like the 21st century, then uh, you clearly aren't reading a lot of comics. Yeah, we got some news for you. You're right that that mentality of it would be so much healthier, both for readers and for the industry as a whole, if we really could adjust to that mindset of, first of all, we don't have to buy everything. We don't have to read everything. We don't have to like everything. Not all books are for us. Lumberjanes does not appeal to me. I recognize that people go completely insane over it. I love Noel Stevenson's Nimona. I'm crazy about it. But Lumberjanes did not speak to me. I have no reason to be like, this book should not exist because it's not for me. I'm like, ugh, let them have it. And I will be reading other stuff. My pull list is not threatened by the existence of Lumberjanes, Gotham Academy, Goldie Vance, or any other title that doesn't appeal to me directly. We are living in the age of comicsology. We're living in the age where Marvel publishes 80 damn titles a month. We're not in a position where if we don't buy everything and read everything, the industry will fail. They're owned by Warner Brothers and Disney. For God's sake, they're not going bankrupt anytime soon. Maybe it's post-trauma because of the 90s crash. I don't know what it is, but they got to get over it. On that note, though, because I do want to sort of flip the tone around, our last... Honorable mention, and uh, with that we will conclude the Smorgies 2016. I would like to offer the Most Honorable Mention Award to DC's Young Animal. This is an initiative that I was very hesitant about because it came at a certain point in time when trust in DC was very, very low for me personally because I was burned by the cancellation of DCU last year. A lot of the titles that debuted under that heading were ones that appealed to me specifically. And I had gotten into them and I was interested and I was enjoying them. And then Rebirth came along, right? Where it's like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to go do something else. And it did sort of feel like the carpet was being pulled out from under me. But when Young Animal was announced as an imprint and it was being headed by Gerard Way. I'm like, look, I enjoy Umbrella Academy. I'm willing to try it. Now, admittedly, not all of the Young Animal titles have hit, but 
the majority of them I find interesting at the very least. Shade the Changing Girl I'm really enjoying. I'm hoping the success of Shade the Changing Girl gets Shade the Changing Man finally reprinted in trades. Mm. Oh yes, that's gotta happen sooner rather than later. And they're all very good looking, you know, it's... it's yes. Like, they have like this artistic, not uniformity, because they all look different, but they have this very clear-eyed, very beautiful, very bright and sunny, even Mother Panic which is more downbeat and is more colorful than most DC superhero books. They look like image books from an art style perspective. From a writing perspective as well. Admittedly, Mother Panic is maybe the most conventional of them, but I mean, Shade the Changing Girl is about an alien spirit that possesses a comatose girl and tries to solve her own murder. You would probably find that either at Image or at Boom. Like, that sounds like something that would come from there, and it is a DC title for all practical intents and purposes. And, Kate and Carson. Marley Zircon's art, oh my god. Yeah. Uh, she was in the running for my Artist of the Year, simply for her work on that thing, which was... Uh, what was the project we reviewed she did before? The one about the girl who was a movie star who played the Lost Alien Princess? Tom, do you know how many Lost Alien Princesses we've reviewed in 2016? Uh, I don't know. It was a murder mystery. I'm not sure. I know you you brought this up last time too, and I I still don't remember. (laughs) But I'm sure we we did not like it as much if we can't remember what the book was. But uh, I know what you're talking about. So I do applaud the fact that this initiative exists, that it's a counterbalance to sort of the overall push with Rebirth of going back to the traditional ways and having three Supermans and six Jokers and nine Lex Luthers and a Partridge and a Pear Tree. Just have like four titles, five titles, whatever. If it expands over time, that's welcome too. Way seems to be, and this might be just a hope of mine, right? Like he, he might be high profile enough that the forces that usually interfere with projects like these will stay away. If they courted Gerard Way in the first place, they are probably not looking to micromanage him. And under his leadership, so far, these books have, you know, they haven't all been stellar, but they have been interesting. Mother Panic, the worst thing that Tom and I could say about it at the time was that it was conventional. It could conceivably take off afterwards, I don't know. Yeah, I I feel like Gerard Way has enough um, name recognition within a certain crowd that it'll draw readers that DC has otherwise struggled to obtain and uh, hoping that, you know, they'll branch out from his, you know, from Doom Patrol onto the other titles within the imprint, as a lot of people I know that are kind of getting into those books are more the crowd that read Image because of just the subject matter, because they don't like superheroes, but, you know... They like more of like the sci-fi kind of stuff. So that was the Smorgies 2016 comics. We love and hate them simultaneously. Max, tell our listeners where they can find you and your works. Okay, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably where I'm most active at M-M-N-E-S-T-O-R-O-W-I-C-H. That's M-M Nestorowicz. You can check out my podcast, uh, Good Brews, Bad Views, or on Twitter at GBBV Podcast or at goodbrewsbadviews.wordpress.com. Um, this is the movie have, podcast? Yeah, that's my movie podcast with my two friends. Uh, we watch a bad movie and, uh, or have like a bad movie and drink um, craft beer and kind of, you know, <laughs> talk about, so hopefully the beer makes the movies better. Uh, it doesn't always, uh, you know, so we talk about the film as a whole and um, what we liked, what we didn't like, crack jokes, and then um, explore new flavors of beer because, uh, there's a very, very large craft beer market here in Michigan, so um, we have ample choices to choose from. So uh, 
by the time this comes out, or our 14th or 15th episode might be posted. So um, we're looking to get more guests on in the future. So, But yeah, we're on iTunes, and we subscribe. Tom? Well, I'm, as usual, at Tom Shops on the Twitter. You can find my podcast here. My other stuff is in Hebrew, so if you're listening to this, it's probably either not in your interest or you're interested, but you're not going to learn a whole language just to listen to me yammer on in a different language. We should mention, because we haven't mentioned in the beginning of the show, that all of this stuff is brought to you by and from Seekwart, Seekwart.org. We do an amazing work. They have an amazing slate of books to come out next year, including, I think, the first critical appreciation of Garth Ennis. Which, oh, that would be interesting. I, which I think they've announced, which is amazing. And, and I mean, they've been putting up with our nonsense for the last three years, yeah. so clearly they're good people. <laughs> They're patient people, <laughs> at least. There's also a book that me and Tom both have uh, articles in, but they haven't announced it, so I can't say more than that. Oh, yeah. Okay, so eyes peeled for org, and we'll obviously bring it up when it's uh, released. Uh, I am not on Twitter because I don't like it, but I do have an English-language podcast on video games for those of you who are interested. I co-host with Boris Oliansky. It's called Games of Future Past. It's a comparative game review podcast, and uh, that's about it. Well, that was that. Well, thanks for having me on, you guys. It was a, a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure, Max. We were really happy to have you. Yep, glad we can make the time change work. <laughs> yeah, and dear listeners, when we shall meet again, hopefully it will be a better year. It, uh, it, well, it's it's it, be much worse. It has to be, right? It oh, has God. to be. Um, well, that orange bastard is going to get in next year, so I don't know how good we can hope for, but we'll we'll try to be optimistic and hope for good comics, right? Good writers, good artists. Yeah. And we'll trash the ones who aren't. So it works out either way. Until next time. Bon appétit. appétit.